This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. We're going to look at uh, this text. Now, remember in Romans chapter 2, last week, Paul was talking about those who judge people. Remember, he said, you who judge, right? The people who are religious that judge the non-religious, that sit in judgment over people. And so he was really critical of those people. And then a couple weeks ago, he was talking about those who are irreligious, right? Those who make up their own truth and their own ideas about how the world was. And he was really calling them out in a powerful and challenging way. Essentially, Paul is challenging us as well because there's a tendency for us to judge people, right? And there's a tendency for us to try to make up our own way. So we fit into both of those categories at different times. So Paul is writing this letter, and now he's addressing, he says, you who are Jews. So if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. We're in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, through the beginning part of 8, all the way through, part of 3, all the way through verse 8. This is the word of God. But if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, written, have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I being still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that, may come, that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. All right. The word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> Lord Jesus, there's a whole lot going on here, and it's hard to understand. But we know that you're the God not of confusion, but the God of truth, and that you can speak to us through all of the noise that's in the world. You can even speak through me. And so I pray that the words that I say would reflect your character and your glory, and that you would give my brothers and sisters listening supernatural ears to hear what it is that you want for them to know so that they can be the people that you want them to be, to live the way you want them to live for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during the quarantine, we were uh, watching Little House on the Prairie, and that was a show that I grew up watching. And I always remember there was this one episode where uh, Laura and a classmate found some gold in, uh, in a pond nearby. Do you remember that episode where they found this gold? And so then they set up, they, got, you know, they, got, they took a screen from, I think, the Olson's Mercantile, and they were you know, panning for gold because they found all this gold. They were so excited because they had this treasure, and they were just thinking about, what can we do with it? We've got this glorious treasure. And as the, as the show went on, we realized it was not actually gold. It was uh, fool's gold. I think it's called pyrite. And so all this work and all this excitement, everything that they thought they had was not really true because what looked like gold on the outside was not actually gold. It didn't really have the value that they had wanted it to, to, to have. It wasn't what it was presented as. Now, uh, a couple things here. First of all, uh, I heard a, a theologian say, a pastor that I like said, he goes, if you want to find gold, you got to dig with a shovel. You don't find a lot of gold if you're using a rake, right? And we know it's leaf season right now, so we know what does a rake do? It just pulls the leaves across the grass. But if you want some gold, you got to dig. And friends, we're digging today, right? There's some gold in here, but we've got to dig with a shovel, and that's okay. We're up to the task because we have one another, we have the Word, and we have the Holy Spirit to explain it to us. So we're going to be digging for some gold today. So I want you to know we're going to try to unearth some gold for your life. But what is pyrite? It's something that looks like gold, but actually isn't. It doesn't have uh, any value. It's not consistent with what it looks like. Now, it's no fault of the pyrite, but it just we think that it looks like gold, and we think it's got more value than it really does. It's not essentially consistent with what it presents itself to be. Well, in this first part of the text, in these first few verses, Paul asks the question. He says, you call yourself a blank. He says in the text, you call yourself a Jew. So that tells us a couple of things. First of all, now Paul is addressing specifically the Jewish members of the Christian church in Rome. He's been talking to Jews and Gentiles all along, but now specifically he's, he's kind of parsing out and pulling out those who are Jews. And there's something that makes them distinct. They're followers of Christ. But he says, you call yourself a Jew. But here's what I want you to do. In the sermon notes on the back, it says, you call yourself a blank because we could put ourselves in this situation and say, you call yourself a Christian? We're being asked to see, are we really what we present ourselves to be? The title of the sermon is Practicing What You Preach. Are we really gold or are we false gold? Representing ourselves to be one thing, but actually something else. And I'll give you the answer to that question. It's basically, yes. <laughs> are we faithful? Yes. Are we false? Yes. That's why we need Jesus. 
So you call yourself a Christian. So in this, in this, uh, in this passage, these passages here, Paul is setting out a list of characteristics. So let's just kind of go through these for a second. These would describe a faithful, uh, a faithful Jew, right? So he says, verse 17, uh, you, both, you, you, uh, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you have his will, you approve what is excellent, you are instructed from the law, all these different things, right? See, the Jews were mem- identified as members of God's covenant family. They were people who had the word of God. They, they boasted in their historical relationship with God. They said, we are God's chosen people. We have been set apart as members of God's family in a special way. We were given the prophets who instructed us. That's part of our religious heritage. That's, that's who we are going back. And that means that we're special people. And there's a sense in which they're right. They have been called by God. But here, Paul begins to, to challenge them a little bit. And he says, hey, you who say you're a guide to the blind. Now, that literally could mean someone who helps a person who cannot see, and that's a good thing to do. But the Jews were called to be a guide to the spiritually blind, the kind of people that would point the rest of the world to God and to his purposes, and ultimately to his son. They were to be a light in the darkness, he says, to the Gentiles. They were instructors and teachers, maybe in a formal sense, in a Sunday school or from a pulpit, but also in an informal sense, when we teach people about what we value in our workplace and who we say is important. We're teaching people about what we think the truth of the world is. And so the Jews had all these things. They were theirs because of this special relationship with God. But then he begins to shift. You notice the tone of his, his, uh, his uh, message changes a little bit. He said, do you not teach yourselves? Because here Paul is questioning essentially their uh, authenticity. Are you like real gold that's true, doing these things that God's asked you to do, or are you a false gold? He says, while preaching against stealing, do you steal? Have you been truly faithful in, to God and in all your relationships, or have you been committing adultery? Even in your hearts, what about idols? He says, you know, you've boasted in the law, but have you always followed the law of God? And we talked about that a lot last week, right? Like we have these standards that we have for people, And then we have a set of standards for ourselves. We hold people accountable to what God has asked them to do, and we give ourselves a lot of extra grace. Now, we don't know specifically how the church in Rome is currently disobeying the law, but what Paul is suggesting is they're using as Jews their preferred status, their their position as chosen people. He's using that as a, a mirror He's holding up a mirror to them saying, are you really being faithful to all that God has done to bless you and to encourage you to be a light to the Gentiles? Or are you simply just resting in your preferred status? See, there's a sense in which that we do this today. We're we're like those Jews in that first century church who were Christians. They're Christians. We are too. They had a Jewish heritage, but we have a Christian heritage, right? Right? Some of us are are new to the faith, and we've just come along, but others of us have been involved in the church for a really long time, and there's a sense in which we kind of rely on the past, the tradition, the old stories. See, I can say I'm a Christian, but am I really following the law of God in every way? Am I really completely honest all the time? Now, I'm not talking about being untactful. I'm talking about, like last week, I was saying, you know, is it easy for me to leave out important details about a conflict that I'm a part of in order to make myself be perceived as the person who's right in the conversation? 
Do I position myself as a person who cares about justice, who cares about the vulnerable, who cares about people who are in need, and yet the only actions that I take to make a difference in the lives of the poor and the vulnerable and oppressed is to click like on someone else's Facebook post. I'll do this to serve the poor, but that's it. God says, welcome the stranger. But am I, am I creating physical barriers and social barriers and psychological barriers to people who are trying to integrate into the life of our community in helpful and healthy ways? Am I making space in my life to serve those who have come from somewhere else so they can flourish and find joy in the same way that I have found joy in my community? Have I always looked with my eyes with ways of integrity? Of course, you know, I'm not committing adultery, right? But, you know, my eye just wanders it from time to time, and that's not really a big deal. That's just kind of what happens, right? The Word says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But I gather for worship with a distracted heart, not seeking to find Jesus, but often just trying to find fault with what's going on or what's not going on. Do I really take this day to rest and to cease from those labors and to take time to worship God and to be renewed and refreshed so that I can work the rest of the days of the week with joy and with passion and with heart? Or do I just say, oh, I'm just exhausted all the time. I'm so busy. We should be rested because today is the day that the Lord has given to us. So the end result for us is as we say, hey, I'm a Christian, but in many ways we're not following the law of God. We're not living into the life that he would have us to live. And so we're like the people that Paul's writing to. And when the word of God confronts us, we realize, wow, I haven't really been living into this. And, and here's what happens when, when we fail to obey. Look at verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What is to blaspheme? It means to... Um, it means to say, it means to speak words that defile and defame the Lord. And I'm speaking all the time with my life. If I'm saying I'm a follower of Jesus and I love him, then I should have the same joy that is the Lord's. I should have the same purpose that is the Lord's. I should care about what he cares about. I should order my life about what he orders his life about. And so then that will glorify and honor God. But if I'm just like everybody else and I say, well, I'm a Christian but I'm just like everyone else, what am I doing? Then I'm saying to the world, following Jesus doesn't really make a difference in my life. That's blaspheming the name of the Lord. Now, I remember listening to a lady, she was being interviewed by a friend, and it was on a video that I was watching about you know, some kind of church video, and this lady was not a Christian, and she was in relationship with her neighbor who had invited her over. And she was saying to this guy, she goes, you know, like, I, you know I'm not a Christian, but like, I don't understand Christians. Because, you know, wasn't Jesus all about, like, spending time with the poor and loving people and being kind? Wasn't he, like, really generous to those who were oppressed and those who were having ex difficult experiences? And she goes, you know, I just see Christians arguing all the time. You're just always talking about what you're against. And as I was listening to her talk, I thought, wow, is that me? Am I just, like, talking about what I'm against? And here's where we stand and say no to this? I'm not saying that there aren't stances that we need to make. But she was noticing the disconnect between what Jesus was about 
and what the people who said they were following Jesus were about. And if that, when that gap gets really, really big, then the people who don't follow Jesus go, well, why are you saying you're following Jesus when you're not doing the things that Jesus did or caring about the things that Jesus cared about? And it was really convicting to me because I thought, well, am I really following Jesus in the way that Jesus reveals himself in the scriptures? Or am I just like talking about following Jesus all the time? I had to wrestle with that question. Uh, famously, Mahatma Gandhi said about this, he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christianity. He says, the Christians above all others are seeking after wealth. Their aim is to be rich at the expense of their neighbors. They come among aliens to exploit them for their own good and cheat them to do so. Their prosperity is far more essential to them than the life, liberty, and happiness of others. He also said Christians are the most warlike people. That's a pretty challenging thing to hear. I like your Christ, but I don't like the Christians. Now, I'm not in any way trying to convert you to Christianity. I'm wanting you to convert yourself in an ongoing way, day after day, to Jesus Christ. I'm not interested in building up a religion. I'm wanting to point you and me to this person who is Jesus, who is the one who so radically and beautifully changed the Apostle Paul's life that he would order his life in a new way. And for Paul, it meant changing what he was doing, spending time here, but now radically changing that. And for us, it may mean that, but it may mean something smaller. Instead of a massive earthquake that disrupts everything, it's a small earthquake every little day where you get up and you say, Lord Jesus, what do you want from me today? How can I live my life in a way that is honoring to you? What would it look like if I began to reflect your character in new ways each and every day, in small ways and yet significant ways? What would that look like? Spending time with you every day, taking up your word and reading it, reading about your life and about who you are, reading it with new eyes. Yeah, I've read the stories. I was in Sunday school. I've heard them all. But taking it up every day, doing the Romans challenge, where I'm going to read through the book of uh, ch or chapter 3 every day this week, and just beginning to allow the word to immerse itself in me and upon me. What does that look like? See, if we don't actually live out what Jesus is saying for us to live out, then, then we too are blaspheming the name of God before the Gentiles. That's pretty serious stuff. So this uh, uh, first part talks about their obedience to the law. Are we practicing what we preach in obedience to the law? The second part asks, where is your heart? What relationship really uh, defines you? Where is your heart? See, uh, the way that Paul does this is he invites them to consider this matter of circumcision. Now, circumcision is the sign of the covenant and the sign of covenant membership in God's family. And we believe in the New Testament that, that the sign of the covenant is baptism now. And so the people who had this, uh, this sign of the covenant, they believed that this, uh, this, this would guarantee their salvation of any Jew who did not reject it. And what Paul is not doing, he's not denying the value of the law, and he's not denying the value of circumcision, which means membership in God's covenant family. But he's saying you can't just count on those things alone. Because if you're really following God, if you love God, then you're going to be living as a member of his family. And right, right, every family has values. Every family has ways of ordering their lives. 
And healthy families have healthy ways of ordering their lives. They spend time together. They, they talk about matters. The, the mom and or dad will extend discipline to children who are wayward, who need to be brought back in to right relationship. Everyone has a responsibility. And when healthy families uh, are ordered by God's word, then they become flourishing and they function well. That doesn't mean there aren't disagreements or arguments or conflicts to work through, but part of the mark of a healthy family is that they work through those conflicts in a healthy way by saying, hey, here's what's going on in me. Can I talk to you about this? This is how I felt hurt. I want to I be in relationship. I need to forgive. That's how healthy families function. Well, how is our family functioning? How is your family functioning? The way that we learn how to function in a healthy way is to look at how God ordains families, that moms and dads love each other, that children obey their parents, that fathers do not exasperate their children, that people serve and they forgive and they come before one another. And so this is what God is saying to us about circumcision. This whole idea is that you're a member of God's family. Each and every one of you, if you've been baptized and you've been given faith in Jesus Christ or you're a child in one of those families, then you're a member of God's family. But are you living it out? Are you responding in ways that, that say, I have a heavenly father who loves me. He's my father, and so I'm going to live in accordance with his word because he knows what's best with me. But father knows best, right? Our heavenly father really does. And then we make decisions in order with that. So here he goes in verse 25. He says, for circumcision, this symbol of the covenant family, is indeed of value if you obey the law. Right? So if you're living in accordance with the values of the family, then circumcision has value. But if you're just saying, oh, hey, I, I, I'm a member of the family, but I'm not doing anything that is consistent with the family values, then you're not really in the family. You want to have the benefits of the family, the family name, the connections, the heritage, all those things, but you don't want to live in accordance with the family. He says, essentially, if you're breaking the law, you're like someone who's not a member of the family. So what's the difference? Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, that is someone who's not a member of the covenant family, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So the person who is saying, I'm living in accordance with the, va the values of the family is shaming the one who says I'm in the family but not really living in accordance with the values. And so when we see people out in the world who are saying, I'm going to do things in the way that Jesus would do that. I'm going to care for the poor and the sick and the vulnerable and the orphan and the widow, and the stranger. They're shaming us, we who have the covenant name upon us and who are not doing that. Now, you need to be members of the family. I'm fully on board with that. But aren't there people in our culture and our world who are loving people better than we are despite the fact that we have the law and we're members of God's family? This is a challenging message, and just to take a little bit of a pause here, because it's kind of like, oh man, Lord, you're really getting deep into my heart here, and that's right. God wants to sift down, to dig down into our hearts and to reveal through the word of God, hold up a mirror to us and to say, this is where you're falling short, church. This is where you're falling short, Matt. I'm not going to kick you out of my family because of it, but I want you to know it. But the good news is, is that Jesus has come. He's still the one, our example and our savior. As, as Paul continues to go, verse 28, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. So your membership at Woodland Church, your membership in God's covenant family is a matter of the heart. Most of you have stood up here at some point. Some of you could have been 60 years ago, Ms. Hardison, right? Stood in the front in the sanctuary and said, I am a member of Woodland Church because I'm a believer in Jesus and I want to follow his commands. We've taken some kind of vow up here or in a, at a session meeting where we gave our statement of faith. We've made that commitment. And that's a good thing because it's like a public profession. Now, I know it's not public because not everybody in the world is here, but it's a public pronouncement. That I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. And then our mission in our life from that point is to continue to say, Lord, how do you want me to follow you today? What's the one thing? What's the one thing that God is stirring in your heart to do? What's that one little earthquake that God is shifting you this morning as a result of encountering his word, as remembering that we're all together in this journey, that we're trying to grow? And man, it's true, we mess up. It's true, we don't get it right all the time, or maybe any of the time. And yet, what has God done to bring us into his family? He sent his son, Jesus. He said, the people that sit in those pews on Sunday morning are so important to me that I want them to know they're in relationship with me through Jesus Christ. He comes to us. And so that changes our hearts. It means we're motivated to serve and to love, not out of obligation because, oh, my dad said I had to do it, but out of the great love that he has given to us. So we're motivated with joy. We're motivated with hope. We recognize we don't get it right, but we're moving out into the world to serve and love him. See, what matters is not so much who we are on the outside, but whose we are on the inside. Circumcision is not merely a physical sign for the Jews. It's something that happens in their hearts. This happens in your heart. Think about uh, the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, right? There's a man who is robbed and beaten and left for dead, and the Levite walks by, and the priest walks by, and, the, and the, you know, the good Samaritan, who no one really likes Samaritans, is the one who comes over and serves. And we, you know, we think about it, well, if, if technically, officially, if the man was dead, then the priest and the Levite would not have been allowed to go over and touch him, because that would have made them unclean. Now, was he left for dead? How dead was he? If he was dead, they couldn't touch him. Did he look dead? Maybe they looked at him and thought, well, he looks dead, so I can't touch him. And maybe that's why they went on. They were obeying the letter of the law. But God doesn't say obey the letter of the law. Obey the heart of the law. And this is how the good Samaritan, the Gentile, essentially shames the priest and the Levite. Because he goes and serves. He says, yeah, I know the law says this, but this is a person who has dignity, who is important, and I'm going to go and serve and care for this man. Sometimes we can get caught in obeying the letter of the law because it gives us an excuse not to do the hard thing, not to engage in the conversation that's challenging, not to make space in our life and in our budget and in our world for people who aren't like us, who are struggling, who are needy, and who are difficult. Now, I'm not saying you can do that 24 hours a day because you can't. You'll be totally wiped out. But do you have five minutes? Do you have an hour a week? Do you have an hour a day? to engage with someone who's hard, who's been hurt, who's experienced difficulty. See, when we see the change of heart in us, when we realize, you know, I had a hard heart. I was angry. I was bitter. I was cranky. And Jesus has come in to redeem and save me. Then we're willing to go to the person who's difficult 
and enter into that space or to make time in our lives for something other than what is meaningful to us. And that's the joy of it. It's an earthquake. It's a little tiny earthquake that's happening. So what is it that God is saying for you? What can you be doing in light of what God has done? Let's go on to the last one. It says to, uh, to take advantage. We're getting here in the chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? What advantage do you have as a Christian? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted, he says, with the oracles of God. I mean, why does it matter that you have the word and you have this covenant family? It matters a lot, right? What does it say that we've been given the word of God to know how to live and to know the grace of God and who he is? And so I would encourage you, take it up and read it. Man, I read through this passage a hundred times this week almost and thought, I really don't know what's going on in this text. But, you know, over time, God reveals something. And over time, God allows you to engage with it and to understand it and to learn. So I would encourage you every day, take up the law. Take up the word. Meditate on it. Make it part of who you are. Let that shape and form you. I know there's a lot of news that you can be acquainted with, and there's a lot of scores that you can learn about, and a lot of uh, interesting uh, celebrity antics going on. But being acquainted with the word of God will shape and form your life for the long term and give you a sense of peace that you can't have by being up on current events. So take the word, take the law, and remember that you are a member of God's family. Let's land the plane here. And this one verse I wanted to pull up to you because it's not something we think about a whole lot. Here in verse 5, he says, But if our unrighteousness serve to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. This word wrath here is, is challenging. Remember a couple weeks ago we said uh, the wrath of God is revealed on those who are unreligious. We also recognize that the punishment or the wrath of God is given to those who disobey. Uh, he, he mentioned this, and it's a difficult thing because we don't really think about the wrath of God all that long, all that much. If you go to Hobby Lobby, there are no pillows that say wrath on them. Like, you know, you go to the office and there's a coffee mug. I got your wrath, wrath mug? Yeah. No, because we're like scared of wrath, and we should be. But what is this idea? What is this teaching? What is this concept? It's this this desire that God wants to destroy evil. And we look around our world, we see evil, right? When you think, you know, I'm going to go to um, Kroger and get some sushi, and then all of a sudden evil just pops out. We can't protect ourselves from it completely or fully. We live in a broken world where, where these kinds of things happen, right? The, um, the gas station near my house, you know, a man was shot and killed. There's violence and there's murder, there's harm, there's hurt everywhere. And you know what? We need a God who will pay for those things, who will punish and get rid of those things. We, we need a God who hates racism. We need a God who hates evil, who hates uh, when children are hurt. The problem is, though, that we recognize that, that we're evil too. We have sin in our hearts because we've been given the law and we're a member of God's family, and yet we still don't follow him faithfully all the way. But the good news is, brothers and sisters, the good news is, is that there was one who came to not only reveal the glory and goodness of God, but to take on that wrath, and that is Jesus Christ. The wrath of all the wicked, evil people in the world that do the big, awful things that we can't stand, and the wrath of God that will take away every little tiny sin that you and I have ever committed, that he has taken on that wrath, 
on himself gladly and willingly so that he could reveal us as people who make a difference in this world. He would forgive our sins. He would make us righteous. So that way when we feel discouraged or convicted about the way we're not living up to God's potential, we realize, you know what, Jesus, thank you so much for forgiving me. Thank you for revealing that to me. Thank you for saving me and claiming me and then also wanting to use me. Because you see, friends, when we live in Christ, when we allow Jesus to take on the wrath of God, when, when, we, when we trust in him, we're not fool's gold. We're something valuable. I just read a, a story this week about some guys who were swimming around in the Mediterranean Sea, cleaning up trash, and they found 53 coins from the Roman era, from the 4th and 5th century, with Roman rulers on them. They were made of gold, and they couldn't believe how beautiful they were. They are just sitting down there on the bottom of the sea for thousands of years, 1,500 years, just sitting there, waiting for someone to unearth them and to see and put them on display. And you see, friends, here's the thing. We're, we're just like that. We've been down in the depths of the sea, broken, unable to be saved, unable to be redeemed, and God on a rescue mission, cleaning things up, comes down and swims and pulls us up and puts us on display. And that's what he's doing when we trust in him. When you say, what's the one earthquake thing that I'm going to do in response to this glorious love that God has given to me? See, you're like a treasure. And here's the thing. The Bible is not about you. <laughs> it's not. It's about what God is doing. But you're in the story, and he wants to use you for his glory. So allow God to rescue you through his son Jesus and put him on display, right? The most beautiful uh, jewelry or gold coins. The reason, the reason these guys saw this is because the sun was shining down, and the coins were reflecting the sun. Well, that's what we're called to do as these shiny objects that God has picked up and rescued and redeemed, and we reflect his glory. So what's the one way this week you can reflect the glory of God in your life? Is it forgiveness? Is it making space to serve? Is it joy? Is it celebration? Is it reaching out to someone who's difficult? What is it? Obey the command that God has given you today to reflect his glory. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.